Let's start the show by talking about my sponsor, Paloma Verde, and their new website, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out for all of your CBD needs. They've got the gummies, tinctures, the salves. So if you're needing anything to maybe chill you out, something to help you get mellowed out, something for your joint pain and stiffness, go over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and give them a check out. Carlos and Vanessa are awesome people. They run a great company. And if you enter the promo code FACTS at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. Plus, any order over $75, you get free shipping. So, I don't know what you're waiting for. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This Podcast. Fact Check This Podcast, and today I am rejoined by my buddy Steve. Uh, you may remember Steve from a previous episode where we talked about the Second Amendment and guns and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Well, today, Steve is going to talk with me about a second something else. We're going to talk about the Second World War. We're going to talk about Finland's involvement in that, the Winter War and Continuation War, which is actually a really interesting topic. I was, um, I was at least on the fringe, knew what had happened with it. And when, when you mentioned that you wanted to, to talk about this in relation to Finland's bid to join NATO now and kind of looking at the historical context of Finland and, and connecting that to what's going on in that part of the world today, I decided to, to take what, what little bit that I did know of kind of Finland's involvement in World War II and dig into it more and research more on it. And really, it's, it's really fascinating just kind of the position that Finland was in, how Finland was created to begin with, um, all of the logistics around Finland and their involvement both in the uh, in their own sustenance or you know sustaining their their state as well as where they played in the Nazi attack on the Soviet Union and the Soviets. Uh, fight with the Nazis and, and so on and so forth. So, so Steve, why don't you uh, kind of take it from the top or wherever you are uh, planning on leading in. Tell us about Finland and how it came to being, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of dig into to the varying wars that, that went on during that time of, uh, of history. Yep. So pre-1900s, um, basically uh, Sweden had a – pretty powerful military and was still a monarchy at the time. And Finland kind of traded hands between Finnish control and Russian control uh, pre-1900 and ended up in the hands of, of Russian control under, um, under their monarchy. Uh, and basically they kind of set up uh, a ruler and it, it started out as <clears throat> an autonomous zone somewhat, but <clears throat> in reality, uh, Russia wanted uh, pretty significant control of it and they would have kind of russification policies that they were trying to implement to uh, gain <clears throat> more Russian support inside of Finland. Um, apologies, I'm going to take a drink here. No, you're fine. And, and that's, so that's interesting and, and it kind of sets up um, for people who aren't aware of kind of where Finland falls on the map. So Finland is connected to Russia 
land-wise, and then it's also connected to what is it, Sweden and um, Sweden and Norway kind of wraps yeah, around yeah, yeah, on yeah. top. So and it, just it, uh, to that point too, I'll say that um, when people are talking about it, it is not a Scandinavian country, but it is a Nordic country. <laughs> right. Common uh, <laughs> important misnomer. distinction. Uh, so so it is landmass-wise, it's connected to Russia, uh, which becomes important. Um, when we get to World War II and the German involvement with Finland and and uh, Finland's Nazi alliance, uh, because they weren't exactly they weren't exactly Axis, they weren't exactly a, a Nazi state, but they were allied yeah. with the Nazis. So yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, so like I was saying, it was under Russian control. Actually, um, when some of my ancestors. Uh, came over to America on their uh, slip that they filled out at Ellis Island. They actually had to renounce their allegiance to Tsar Nicholas II. And uh, so when, when Russia, the monarchy started kind of falling apart, uh, basically Finland uh, had declared their independence throughout those years. <clears throat> those Russification projects weren't very popular and nationalist uprisings started to kind of swell and some student groups started fomenting a revolution and Finland was formed in 1917 <clears throat> and and uh, there was a pretty brutal civil war between the Finnish Reds and the Finnish Whites the reds being the communists and the whites being the anti-communists and a lot of the former military leadership that had worked essentially for the russians uh in finland were on the side of the on the side of the whites so they had a pretty good advantage in terms of in terms of that but even in those early days it was kind of a proxy war with uh, a lot of the communists trying to funnel in weapons and fighters to the side of the Reds, and it was a pretty pretty brutal uh, civil war where a lot of Finns died, but the whites ended up prevailing and establishing a non-communist government. Uh, originally, it was initially a monarchy, uh, but the original monarch abdicated his throne, and then instead they decided to go with basically a, a presidential republic-style system. Um, so from there, uh, the Soviet Union, or kind of the the early start of the Soviet Union with with Lenin, kind of realized that that they no longer had control of Finland and they didn't have any resources to be able to try and control them. So they recognized Finland's independence, and. Uh, from there, it was kind of an, an uneasy alliance between uh, Finland and Russia. Now, from the Civil War, um, they had a pretty significant amount of small arms uh, that were being essentially funneled in by those proxies. And then the other thing, too, is they had a lot of post-World War I weapons where there were hundreds of thousands or millions of, of Mosin-Nagants that were essentially spread out across Europe that a lot of these countries had stockpiles of 
that they were looking to get rid of on the cheap. Now, at the time, Finland was a very poor agricultural country uh, with not a ton of industry or exports comparatively to, say, the U.S. or Britain. So they didn't have a ton of money to spend on defense. So one of the things that they were doing through that uh, interwar period in terms of preparing was taking those Mosin-Degants and rebarreling them and they put new sights on them, um, new bolts. Basically, the, the later iterations was everything redone except for the receiver. <laughs> and so they were making the best of, of what they could with very limited resources. Um, and if you're ever interested on Finnish weapons or Finnish Mosin-Degants, especially in particular, uh, Forgotten Weapons does a, a great series on that. So getting into the 1930s um, with the rise of, of Stalin. I was going to say, uh, while, while we, as we move forward a little bit, um, for anybody who's not, again, not familiar with geography and where Finland falls, because, I mean, most so, people don't know a European map. Um, yeah. If you're, if you're not familiar with where Finland, Finland falls, like, it's very cold. And so the lack of industry and lack of agriculture is going to really come into play once we get into uh, Nazi Germany expanding its power and moving out through Europe, because that's a uh, that's a big kind of bargaining chip that uh, that lends Finland to allying itself with the Nazis. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Are you able to. Uh share a screen and have it recorded yeah actually i can okay if you want to if you want to pull up a map i can i can maybe talk to that a little bit so you should be able to share now okay okay here we go all right can you see this yeah. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, if, if you look at the map here um, with Finland, one of Stalin's major concerns was, you know, St. Petersburg right here or Leningrad or Stalingrad, you know, it's kind of Istanbul, Constantinople, right? <laughs> um, but St. Peter, Petersburg is this major hub, um, major port here into the Gulf of Finland. And Stalin was very concerned with this being a particularly susceptible point uh, to capture and particularly vulnerable. So in the late 1930s, basically, uh, In the 1930s, he, late 1930s, he basically started making demands where he wanted uh, what is called this Karelian Isthmus right here. And he wanted to push the borders back uh, to get them away from St. Petersburg 
He also wanted some land up here, the Finns to essentially draw back their troops and any fortifications there, as well as some of these islands in the Gulf of Finland. And he wanted that as a buffer zone to not have to worry as much about St. Petersburg. The Finns would come back with counter offers uh, and they would be rejected by the Soviet Union. Now, uh, can you see my other screen here where I'm pulling up essentially this, this map? Yes. Okay. So this map here. I wanted to, uh, so I wanted to interject a little bit because that, that's something that's going to yeah. come into play later on as well is the, so Finland would make these counter offers and, and they would get rejected because as far as the Soviets were concerned, the, the only option was whatever their option was that they were presenting. So, so that actually comes into play towards the end of world war two or not. Well, not necessarily the end of World War II, but the end of the Finnish um, participation in World War II, when when the uh, when Finland is is effectively just like neutral, they're they're really not taking a side. Uh, so so for a, for a decent period of time, uh, hostilities were continued between Finland and the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union would only accept a. Uh, a unconditional surrender and Finland was like, we're not doing that. So, so they eventually, they realized that they could get away with a conditional surrender and just put an end to the whole thing. But, uh, but it caused the whole thing to stretch out. I can't remember what the exact timeline is, but it's, it's like 18 months or something of, of uh, Soviet and Finnish hostilities just because the Soviet union was so, uh, was so, you know, heels dug in on you either accept our terms or or nothing else like <laughs> so so this talking about this the the uh the terms that were being given and then rejected like that that comes into play further down the road with a lot of a lot of things that the soviet union does during this time in history yeah and they they were smart enough to see the writing on the wall that it was probably a pretext to making these concessions and then they would have to make more and more concessions and you see that uh especially in some of the baltic states like estonia where russia made similar demands to them they realized they did they didn't have any other resources to be able to resist and to sum up a a long story in in that one essentially it became a soviet union state and a lot of their citizens went off to the gulags. So the Finns had the foresight to maybe see that, that this wasn't just a concession that was gonna stop at, at these regions, but you can kind of see on this map. So they wanted Karelia, um, a couple of these Northern areas and, and these islands here. And Karelia is a, a big part that kind of factors into what we're talking about when the war actually kicks off. So. In 1939, this is before the invasion of Poland, before Germany is in open hostilities with the Soviet Union. Uh, this is this pre all that. The Russians cut off communications with Finland, um, any diplomatic communications, and they shell basically shelled their their own military outpost and claimed it was the Finns. Uh, and use that false flag to, to kick off 
the Winter War of 1939-1940. Uh, so when you look at look at the map here, basically, you know, this border was if if you kind of took this big lake here, this is Lake Ladoga. If you took it and cut it in half at a 45 degree angle, that was essentially the pre-39 border. You can kind of see it here. And the advantage for the fins is you get this big choke point down here and you don't have to necessarily defend all of this land right here around the lake. You know, it's a big open area as long as you have some emplacements down there, even if the ice is thick enough, it's not really an easy position to assault. Now, as in terms of forces back then, the Finns had around like somewhere over 200,000 troops. Uh, they were a, a pretty small country. I believe if I'm remembering right, population around that time was like three and a half million, somewhere, somewhere in that area. Um, so they really didn't have much in terms of troops. And looking at the Soviet Union during that era, um, population-wise is somewhat comparable to Russia today, but they also had the added benefit of being able to conscript anyone, anywhere into service without any real ability to say no. If you said no, you're probably going to end up in Siberia. So they essentially had an, an endless pool of, of troops that they were able to able to pull from. And the Finns really only had 200,000. So their thinking was that they were never going to beat Russia in terms of a long protracted war. Uh, they were not going to be able to outmight the Soviet Union. Their desire was to be able to hold out long enough that some of the other nations around them, like Sweden or even the UK uh, or some of these other powers would come to their aid. And they had kind of put their faith in the League of Nations and their declared neutrality before the war and hope that uh, eventually some other countries would, would come to their aid and help drive off the Russians. They really didn't have anything. Uh, they really didn't have anything in terms of tanks or aircraft or artillery, at least in any huge numbers. Oh, sorry, I apologize. Uh, 300,000 troops, not, not 200,000. Um, I was thinking of, of current numbers, but we'll get into that. But you can see here, like 32 tanks, 114 aircraft, and so I guess not, not nothing, but comparatively to the Soviet Union, effectively nothing. Throughout the war, though, what they were able to do is they were able to capture uh, large amounts of Soviet equipment. So those tank numbers actually increased with how many of the tanks that they were able to capture. Uh, but it was never a huge, significant factor comparatively to the Soviet Union. Now, at this time, uh, the UK and Sweden and some of these countries that, that they were looking to get support from, or even the US, were very hesitant to do anything that would provoke the Soviet Union. Uh, they saw 
some of the moves that Germany was was making and saw the writing on the wall with Hitler having more and more territory. And they didn't want to have the Soviet Union side with Nazi Germany against them. So that's part of the reason why Finland was, uh, and if you pardon the pun, kind of left out in the cold in terms of getting arms and ammo and uh, other soldiers from other countries to fight for them because there's this hesitancy to provoke the Soviet Union into joining a war with the Germans against them. Now, the people of Sweden and some of these other countries were very supportive of Finland and wanted to do everything they could support do to support them, but their governments, not so much. Uh, they just kind of wanted Finland to, to tie up the Soviet Union so that the Soviet Union wouldn't be a factor and wouldn't be inclined to uh, take other territories or join on the side of Germany. And to be fair, so, as we progress forward through history, they kind of successfully do that uh, to to their own detriment to some extent. But that that is uh, they they do serve that purpose relatively effectively as we as we move forward through uh, World War Two and and even past that. Yep. So the only country that was even relatively willing to help Finland out. Uh, was Germany at the time. So Germany would supply Finland with like some uniforms, uh, some small arms, and some very older aircraft out of date that they weren't using anymore, like uh, fixed landing gear type of post-World War One, pre-World War II aircraft that was by no means the latest and the greatest. The one good thing that Finland had going for it, though, is um, they had a lot of internal uh, good Finnish firearms design uh, and firearms manufacture inside of Finland. So like with their Mosin refurbishment program, uh, there's the Suomi submachine gun that was completely internally designed and produced that was kind of a, a precursor to the PPSH um, and some of their own light machine guns and, and stuff like that. So they had a lot of the design and manufacture of firearms internally, which, which they had going for them. But as far as military equipment, they, they really didn't have much. Now, part of the reason why that wasn't as big a factor in some other conflicts is looking at the map here, like I said, this, this choke point of the Karelian Isthmus uh, around Lake Flatoga. And then you can see all of the lakes around here. And this is all uh, densely forested area. So like up to the north, this is what you call Lapland. Um, and this is all very sparsely populated, dense forest. Pretty much a, a, along most of the... Finnish eastern border is, is that kind of terrain with a lot of lakes and a lot of trees. So as far as like a Barbarossa style tank push, like you saw in say Poland or something like that, 
much more difficult to try and pull off in, in this kind of terrain, in this kind of area. The other thing that the Finns had going for them um, without that mechanized equipment is a lot of their units were very mobile and they were prepared for the cold and prepared for the winter. So they had a lot of ski troopers. So they could navigate a lot of this terrain without that military equipment and do so quietly and effectively and be able to move through this area unlike a lot of the Russian mechanized divisions. And if you look at some old pictures of the winter war, they actually used reindeer to haul a lot of their gear, which is kind of, kind of cool and kind of funny to look at, but it, it was really effective. Um, and they, they were able to mobilize a lot better in, in terms of this terrain than the Soviet union was. Um, Another thing that I'll, that I'll point out, so throughout this conflict, one of the first things that the Soviet Union did is they started bombing Helsinki. Now, the foreign minister at the time, uh, Molotov, he was claiming that the bombs that were falling on Helsinki were actually humanitarian aid food drops that they were dropping bread on Helsinki to feed their starving people. So the term Molotov cocktail, uh, that's kind of the, the origins of how that came to be. It was like, oh, you're, you're claiming that you're dropping bread on Helsinki. Well, here's your Molotov cocktail. So that's, um, if you hear that term, that's essentially where, where that came from. Um, so as the Soviet Union was, was trying to push into Finland, they tried a, a multi-pronged attack where, where they would attack from the north. But one of the main pushes was if they could get through this Karelian Isthmus and get past, um, they changed the name on it. Uh, I believe this is the city. I, I really apologize if I'm getting it wrong. But uh, there's a port town that of the name of Vipri that's somewhere right in here. Um, and essentially, that was the point that they were trying to get past, that if they could get past Vipri, they could essentially drive the coast to Helsinki. So besides also kind of having these choke points uh, and, and these mobile troops, the other thing that they had was the Mannerheim line. So that was named after Carl Gustav Mannerheim, who was the leader of Finland at the time, he was a general who had served in the Russian army uh, pre-Soviet Union, and he had a lot of experience from that. And they had this Mannerheim line, which was, um, if, if you're comparing it to the Maginot line in France, the the Mannerheim line was a lot less like concrete bunkers and more so defined defense points with entrenchments and machine gun placements. So it, you know, if you just look at, look at the border, a defensive line along there, it's, it's obviously going to be a little more uh, sparse, but they had this defined 
defensive line where they had put up these points of defense uh, where they thought would be advantageous. And they had also prearranged a lot of these points for their artillery and set up good artillery points uh, also along some of some of uh, some of these uh, coastal points. So they would have a lot of coastal artillery emplacements on some of these islands and were set up very well uh, to defend with, with the amount of artillery that they have. And that was also a pretty big factor in being able to push back the Soviets. So what ended up happening uh, in a lot of cases, so in a lot of these Northern areas, um, very small comparative amounts of fins were able to hold back a lot larger numbers of Soviet troops. And in a lot of these cases, there, there weren't really great places to move these, these mechanized brigades and they weren't prepared for the Finnish winter whatsoever. So they would have to travel the, the existing roads that, that were there to try and make these pushes into Finland. Well, you know, they would inevitably stop some of these um, some of these troops that were trying to come in through these roads. And once they stopped them, uh, essentially plow their own roads through the snow um, or ski around the troops and try and cut them off from the rest of their line of troops. And that ended up being known as what's called matis, which is a term of basically firewood that's been piled up that's that's ready to cut so this line of soviet troops would get severed and they would have these little multi pockets where um they could essentially just attack and and harass them endlessly while they were sitting there with no supplies no uh cold weather gear uh any of that kind of stuff and it's similar in the sense of when Hitler was planning Barbarossa against the Soviets, he thought, you know, a few weeks will be done. We're not even going to give them winter clothing. Similar situation to Stalin at the time. You know, he was very overly optimistic where like, oh, we'll crush Finland in a matter of weeks. No big deal. They don't need any winter clothing. Uh, we'll just send them out there, which ended up not being the case. So. A lot of these multi pockets, you know, besides the the fins attacking them, one of the biggest factors was starvation and them getting frostbite. So these surrounded areas, like whenever they would try and light a fire to cook some food or to warm up some themselves, they they get shot at, which was uh, pretty demoralizing for them. The other factor that you have to think about too is if you look at Finland geographically. You know, during the winter, there's not a ton of sunlight. You know, the days in Finland in the summer are very long and the days in the winter are very short. So nighttime, these units are surrounded without food, without warm clothing, and then they try and light a fire and they get shot at. So it was very demoralizing for a lot of a lot of these troops. Uh, trying to make this push into 
into northern Finland. On the southern coast, um, I say, and like know, another another these... important thing that like um, in that is that everything is frozen. Like during that time, oh. everything's frozen. All the water is frozen. The ground is frozen. Like it's it's hard to if you haven't already got established bunkers that you're dug into it's virtually impossible to dig in your equipment yeah. doesn't run as good in in the cold especially back then like you know they, did, they didn't have the kind of uh technology and equipment that we have that you know you you let your stuff warm up and and it runs fine like it everything bogged down um exponentially at that time so like think about you know think about as cold as it is if you just live uh, even here where I am in Indiana or as far north as Steve is like your car doesn't want to run good. Think about having a tank in the 1940s that is in, uh, you know, considerably further north, like talking, we're talking like, um, as far as the globe goes, like this is, this is up in like central Canada type of, uh, latitude. So, um, is that longitude or yeah, I think that is latitude. Anyway, we're talking about like stupid far north in winter. Uh, nothing, nothing is nothing is going to be hospitable. This is Mother Nature is actively trying to murder you every day and even more at night. Yeah. So um, to that point too, if, if yeah, with with the equipment, um, even things is like what type of group grease or like how often you're running airplanes or like what type of oil or grease you're using in your guns once it starts and this winter of 39 40 was particularly cold where it would hit points of like negative 30 negative 40 degrees so the fins you know had had lived in this and had been preparing for this so they knew how to keep their airplanes up and running um, what kind of grease and oil to use um, that wasn't going to freeze when you hit those temperatures. And a lot of the Russian troops were sourced from around the entire Soviet Union. So they had never seen anything like that, had any idea of how to deal with that equipment wise to keep their stuff up and running. The other thing that's interesting that, that the Finns had going for them. So they would have uh you know they were they were pretty well fed um, comparatively to the Soviets, which was a huge factor, especially in that type of weather. And they also had uh, mobile sauna units, so they would literally haul uh, a sauna on a sled, like out to the field, and have their guys come in, and they'd be able to, to take saunas, which really helps um, just hygiene-wise, uh, morale, and and. Uh, keeping your troops warm and, and healthy. Uh, so the, on the Southern coast, um, <clears throat> the Soviets were having trouble pushing through and, and getting past Vipuri, uh, and the Finns were, were putting up a, a hell of a defense, but the Soviets had the advantage of just being able to throw endless troops at it and just keep throwing more and more and more and more troops. So getting <clears throat> um, past kind of those winter months and, and into the springtime, uh, Mannerheim and the Finns kept appealing 
to Sweden, um, UK, and a lot of these other countries asking for aid. And they started to realize that their days were kind of numbered in terms of how long they could defend the Mannerheim line. And they had um, essentially three kind of levels of, of this Mannerheim line. And they had fallen back to like their last line of defense uh, to try and keep the, the Soviets from pushing any further. But at this point, you know, their army had been ground down. Now, keep in mind, too, that that through this point, the Finns, you know, casualty wise, 25,904 dead or missing. 45 or 43,500 wounded Soviets, 126,875 to uh 168,000 dead or missing with uh, 188 to 207,000 wounded. So soldier wise, the Finns had inflicted some uh, crazy defensive losses on the Soviets uh, and comparatively not taken that many losses of their own. Yeah, so at, at this point, point, we're kind of winding down the, the Winter War, and, and what kind of comes of it is the Soviet Union ultimately gets what they were aiming for in the war, but not without sustaining anywhere from five to ten times the amount of casualties and, and wounded that is what Finland took. So, so fin, Finland, uh, Finland ultimately lost the land that it was trying to hold, but, at the, but on the other end of it, it really it really applied some major lumps to the Soviet Union in what they were trying to accomplish. So the other thing that, that I definitely want to mention uh, with the Winter War is this is at the time of Simo Haya, who is by far the sniper with the with share, the Share your screen again so we, can, uh, so we can see that. Okay. All right. All right. So this was um, also the, the same time as, as this guy here at Simo Haya, uh, by far uh, the most credited sniper in history and probably won't ever even be close. So he had around 250 or so confirmed sniper kills and about the same amount with a submachine gun. So you're talking like, sorry, my uh, dog is getting ready to throw up right now. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, he had 500 confirmed kills. And if you think about the span of it, uh, during a few months of this war. Um, so those accurized versions of, of those Finnish Mosins, along with uh, their ski troop operations, basically allowed him to to put up kill numbers that that will never be touched probably in history ever ever again um but back to kind of the the end of the the winter war and what was happening here the soviets were were closing in on vipery um it was looking like they might break through there as well as some areas in the north 
And once that happened and that defensive line was, was broken through, they could make the push to Helsinki and just essentially install their, their government. So Mannerheim saw the writing on the wall and basically capitulated um, some, some areas in the north along with those islands that, that Soviets wanted along with this uh, Karelian Isthmus right here. So the Soviets got all of that and then they, they got their buffer zone that they wanted. Now the Finns had a tough position at the time of trying to play it off. Like they, like they could keep going for another six months and like we're holding strong, but in reality um, they, they were in, in pretty dire straits just because of the sheer amounts of numbers of, of troops and weapons that, that the Soviets were, were thrown at this. So in the end, um, of the Finnish war, basically the Soviets got all that they were originally asking for and then some in terms of territory. But uh, there was a famous quote from like one of the Soviets where he said like they gained just enough territory to be able to bury all of their bodies. And from that as well, the other impact of that was Hitler was, was watching this whole thing and this was some of the precursor that, that led him to think that Barbarossa was going to be a cakewalk. Everybody thought that the Soviet Union was this huge military power that could steamroll anybody they wanted. And Hitler basically saw what happened in Finland and thought, oh, they don't look so tough. And um, to the point a little bit, too, about the, the Finland. Um, German cooperation and, and some of the stuff that they were sending Finland at the time, it, it wasn't like some of the other states um, that, that Germany was working with or annexing. Um, uh, Finland was actually during World War II um, a safe harbor for uh, some of the Jews that were fleeing Nazi Germany. And um, when, when any talk of, uh, exiling or, or doing anything to the Jewish population that, that was in Finland uh, ever came up, they, they shut that down real quick. So I want to make sure that that's at least clear that they were not a part of um, any of that. It was basically kind of an alliance of, of last resort for them in, in terms of that aspect. And what we're what we're probably going to look at and talk about as we get into the continuation war side of it is that by the time it's all said and done and it's played itself out, it really becomes pretty apparent that Finland was using the alliance with Nazi Germany to effectively push back and take their lost territory back from the Soviet Union. Like, um, we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll get into it more, but like the primary goal of this alliance and and trying to use Finland as an attack point to get into uh, the Soviet Union was to hit Leningrad. And the Finnish, uh, the Finnish generals really <laughs> didn't have any interest in attacking Leningrad. Like that wasn't, that wasn't a goal of theirs. And so they, they kind of um, hung the Germans out to dry every time they tried it in that they just, they wouldn't, uh, they didn't oppose them. They just didn't support them. Like, it's like, if you want to go attack Leningrad, cool, you go do your thing. We're, 
we're not going to help with that. Like we're, we, we have our own goals in this alliance. And, and that, so that's what really, um, as this whole thing goes forward, you know, talking about the, the looseness of that, that Nazi alliance that Finland had, they, they were really kind of using this to their own benefit to, to do what was necessary for Finland. And, uh, and honestly, between the, Soviet Union attempting to to annex Finland and then the German alliance with Finland like seemed like Finland is just kind of a no man's land that why would anybody waste time either way but uh, and and Finland kind of uses that to their advantage to just remain relatively independent uh, in in both both conflicts at the end yep and and that was that was their own goal or their only goal really was just to remain an autonomous independent country um and and they were just looking for whatever means they could they could do to maintain that um so uh, when the uh winter war concluded all of the finnish population in the areas in lapland that that the soviets took control over as well as the karelian isthmus um they basically gave the the Finnish citizens that were still living there that hadn't been evacuated the option of either joining the the Soviet Union or um, fleeing back to Finland and essentially zero stayed um, so all of uh, their houses and and all the Finnish population just straight up uh, moved out of those areas but they still, you know, wanted that that area back that was unjustly taken from them from the Soviet Union. So, prior to Operation Barbarossa um, and the invasion of Germany into the Soviet Union, uh, the continuation war started, and basically the the Finns were looking to take back these areas that that they had lost in the winter war and they managed to push and gain back the areas that they had previously uh and then some because it it ended up being where the the soviets were so tied up with with uh germany that they were just doing their best to to hold their own um against germany so the Finns were able to make huge pushes and, and gain the areas back that they had lost pretty quickly. And then they even actually pushed further to control most of the area around Lake Latiga, um, even further than they had, they had previously owned. Now, as, as the uh, World War II went on and essentially Russia was able to push back Germany. Um, now they had pretty much whatever resources they, they wanted to throw at it. And it, it kind of became a similar situation to the winter war where the Finns had a, a stiff resistance and inflicted a lot of losses on Soviet troops, but also, the Soviets had learned a lot of lessons from from the Winter War in in terms of fighting the Finns, um, and 
it was a similar situation in, in terms of, of pushing them back and the Finns kind of, again, sort of knowing their days were numbered with the amount of Soviet resources that they had to throw at Finland. And at this point, too, um, towards the end of the continuation war, um, keep in mind that the Soviet Union was churning out tanks and airplanes and getting tons of arms from the Lend-Lease Act. So they were 100% geared up for war and had vast amounts of military equipment and you know more superior equipment than, than what they had when they were attacking during the Winter War. And I think it's so, also important to note that during this time, uh, through the during the continuation war and, and what's going on here at this point of World War II, the Nazis also had a couple of major missteps in this part of of the the uh, the war front. Like they, uh, there was I can't remember what offensive it was that they were they were planning to make this big push and they had, they were planning to use they had uh, they had acquired Russian maps and and the map on the maps they thought they had identified where these roads were so they were going to use these roads to just roll tanks in and absolutely steamroll their way through and make this big offensive push except that the way that the russians or the the soviet union uh labeled their maps was different than the way the, the nazis labeled their maps oh. and so what appeared to be roads yeah. on the maps were actually like tell uh telegraph lines and so when they show up to to roll that roll through with their tanks there's nothing to drive their tanks on and so they end up getting bogged down they end up uh having substantial losses in that and and every time something like this happens like one of these major german missteps occurs on this front uh finland's taking like no casualties during any of these like they're they're just kind of sitting back watching the germans fuck up and letting them have at it and really not doing a whole lot to to uh, stop it or to support them in in these efforts. So, you know, Finland is really just kind of uh, Finland's just kind of sitting there like, yeah, you go do your thing. We're going to we're going to hold our own. And uh, and it, it ultimately results in. Uh, I don't want to say on a large scale, but really to a majority scale, the the Nazis kind of pulling out of pulling away from Finland and just kind of leaving the Finns to, uh, to hold their, hold their line and, and not really continue any offensives on that, uh, uh, in that front. That, that road comment made me think to another, another big one is that was interesting is the width of rail rail lines was different in the Soviet union than it was in Germany. Um, so as they anticipated just being able to use these rail lines to, uh, get supplies in. Uh, that did not happen. Well, and that was that was so. even that was even a problem that they that the the Nazis ran into from Sweden into Finland because they would try to move supplies for for their uh, troops and stuff through. They would try to come up through Sweden and move supplies on rail across into Finland, as opposed to trying to come across through the water because uh in the winter months and stuff a lot of the a lot of this body, these bodies of water would just freeze up and it was virtually impossible to get stuff through. So they were trying to move stuff by rail through, except that once they got to, once they got to the, you know, the line, the, uh, the state line or whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the width of the rails changed. So they had to, they had to have troops 
basically stand there and unload everything from the one train onto another train, which was just adding the need for manpower. It was adding time. It just it created these massive delays that at that point in in the war they couldn't afford. And and it really uh, attempting to use Finland to as a jumping off point to go into the Soviet Union and and mount an offensive. Uh, it really it really shot the Nazis in the foot at pretty much every turn. Yeah. Uh, another thing too, about some of these lake crossings, you know, uh, when, when you think about uh, going out on a frozen lake and, and ice fishing and stuff like that, generally you think like um, around four inches, three or four inches is typically safe for a person to walk on. Um, generally you look for like six to eight, for a light car, maybe 10 for a truck, but how many inches of ice do you need to move a, a tank across a lake? And then the coastal ar artilleries that, that I was talking about, a lot of the times when the, the Soviet troops were trying to make these lake crossings in tanks, uh, they would shell the lake and you don't have to hit a tank necessarily to be effective. If you can just break the ice around it, the, tank is is going down um but to your point too in terms of of their position and and what they were doing and not necessarily being in step with uh germany is that um hitler was continuously wanting them to make an assault and a push on saint petersburg to divert soviet attention and soviet troops um away from his front and basically to use the Finns in, in a more offensive capability. And Finland didn't really want any part of that. Um, it was never an aggressive war to that extent. Again, they just wanted to be their own autonomous, um, self-controlled country. And they just basically, you know, took their, took their territory and just wanted to hold it. And, and that was their game plan. And um, like you were saying, Germany was really not happy about that because they wanted to essentially use Finnish forces as an offensive force kind of attacking from the north into the, the Soviet Union. Now, during the continuation war, there were um, some German troops that were stationed in the northern part of the country. Um, not in any real great numbers and they weren't very effective but as the continuation war came to a close uh, Finland was basically seen as a co-belligerent uh, with the Axis powers and got screwed in the negotiations uh, post-World War II and they also had to essentially drive out and uh, capture these German troops that were still uh, kind of in this, in this Northern part of the country. So there was actually some, some fighting between Finnish troops and German troops there towards the end of the war, um, essentially trying to get the, the German troops out. So during that whole process, Finland again, didn't have, anybody they could really turn to for resources. Um, 
and Germany was was their only real supplier of of anything. But throughout the entire time, they were uh, kind of keeping them at an arm's length and not really taking direction from Germany in terms of what what they were uh, planning on doing or just even being seen as as buddy buddy with Germany um, to that extent. So post-World War II, um, you know, Finland remains a country and they are allowed to keep their borders, but um, the Soviet Union essentially took back all of the territory from the continuation war um, and, and Finland got treated as, you know, another Axis power, even though um, they were never really a part of the goals of the, the greater Axis powers. So from that context to, I guess, turning a little bit into modern day with, with that history in mind, that it, it, the parallels in terms of Finland just wanting to be their own independent country without having to worry about uh, Russia invading and that hesitancy to you know, they want to remain neutral. They didn't want to get in any military alliances, but they don't want to be put in a position um, similar to what Ukraine is in right now, where, yes, Ukraine is getting military support in terms of uh, arms and artillery and missiles and stuff like that. But none of the NATO countries or even the neutral countries are excited to hop into a war on Ukraine's behalf um, and get in a hot war with, with Russia. So the similarities there of Finland doesn't want to be caught in this, in this state of Russia invades and everybody's flying Finnish flags, but no one is willing to support them militarily for the fear of getting into a hot war with Russia and ending up with no real allies and, and stuff like that. Now, the, the differences now, though, I, I think are that if you see what's going on in, in Ukraine, a lot of these NATO countries and a lot of the neutral countries may not be willing to commit troops, but they sure are willing to sell um, equipment or give equipment and aid uh, to Ukraine versus during the winter war and the continuation war, even just providing small arms uh, to Finland was not very enticing for the governments of, of these other countries. And you can kind of see now, so um, Finland is, is kind of interesting with, with their military. So they, they don't have a large standing army. Um, they have just maybe like a couple thousand troops that are on active duty, like ready to go at, at any time. But the thing that they do have, they have mandatory military service um, for everyone in Finland. So essentially of their population, um, huge percentage of their population has had at least basic military training. So it's not it's not like the U.S. in the sense where it's kind of like all or nothing where you sign a 
four-year contract and with that four-year contract they can do whatever they want with you and and kind of results in a lot of Americans not really having uh, military training or, or a huge pool of reserves to pull from where you'd be like starting from scratch. It's, it's like a few months um, where they, they get their basic training and then they get to go home. So they have a huge pool of reserves that have at least had that, that basic training and that 200 or that kind of couple thousand number of troops that are ready to go. There's about 200,000 that, that could be ready within, you know, a matter of maybe like a week or so. And then there's also, you know, maybe somewhere a little under like a million of the population that are um, fighting age fit for service that could be ready relatively quickly after that and probably would be um, if the Soviets invade. And if you think about kind of that area and the terrain um, that they're fighting in, so one of the huge disadvantages is, is not having this Karelian Isthmus as a defending point. So you, you don't have that lake essentially serving as a funnel point, but there is... Um, there is uh, this area here where, you know, if you think about the trouble that Russia has had in Ukraine, it's been some supply line issues to an extent and um, getting tanks and aircraft taken down by uh, man pads or, or other portable missiles or, or anti-tank devices. Well, in a country that's, that's heavily wooded um, and a lot of lakes um, in these forests like this, if, if they're having trouble with that in the fairly open terrain of the Ukraine, uh, it would be very easy for non-mechanized troops to wreak some real havoc with some of those uh, portable anti-tank and anti-aircraft, anti-aircraft devices. Um, and with the amount of troops that Finland could pull together and probably getting a lot of support from those other countries, um, it could be a, a real nightmare for the Russians if they tried to invade Finland again. And as far as, you know, tanks and aircraft, um, Finland really doesn't have that much. But what they do have in terms of tanks is. You know, they have Leopard 2s um, from Germany for tanks, and they have, uh, for fighter aircraft, they, they've got F-18s and a significant amount of anti-aircraft batteries and, and guns and stuff like that. So in the situation of Russia not being in Ukraine, it's maybe not a great situation for Russia to try and invade but when they have significant portions of their forces tied up in the Ukraine, there's no real scenario where they could effectively uh, invade Finland without really suffering some, some major consequences for doing it uh, at this point. And I think Putin kind of knows that. And, and that's been 
somewhat of the extent where if you listen to his rhetoric about Finland and Sweden joining NATO now, uh, he's been kind of posturing the nuclear option, um, like putting missiles close to the border and kind of making inferences that that, that might be an option out there. I was going to say, now, so wouldn't, I, wouldn't wouldn't NATO kind of be in a similar position as what uh, as what the the Allies were early World War Two, where like you look at Finland, you look at Sweden, is it worth is it worth pissing off Russia and and continuing to kind of exacerbate the problems that are going on in that area to admit them into NATO? At a time when, honestly, why would Russia want anything to do with those countries anyway? Like, I understand Finland and Sweden's positioning on trying to uh, be self-defensive in in doing that. But at the same time, like, is it worth the risk of pushing Russia to another level for NATO to to do that? Like, it, it feels like you would be... It feels like NATO would better be served to take kind of the allied position of just leave it alone. Don't, you know, don't poke the bear, so to speak. Um, and see how, see how things kind of play out over the next few years, as opposed to, because it's going to take, it's going to take years for either of those countries to get admitted into NATO anyway. So they can just kind of sit on it and see what happens, see how things shake out as opposed to, to really, uh, kicking the hornet's nest and pushing this thing over the edge, especially where those two are concerned, where they don't really have any, they don't have any strategic um, value to Putin and Russia, like the Donbass region and Ukraine. There's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Uh, Donbass has a, a large steel manufacturing. Uh, that's it's a large steel manufacturing region in the area. It's uh, like there, there are, there are strategic and 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 uh, like it's a good area to be uh, positioned in. Finland yeah. and Sweden just don't really have that. Yeah. So, um, so I, I think that whole idea narrative that that Putin is trying to reestablish the Soviet Union. And he's going he would be rolling into Poland tomorrow if he could is is a little bit ridiculous and 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 probably not rooted into reality um, but uh for the Nordic countries uh I can definitely understand why they would be apprehensive and uh a little more uh, cautious about that uh, given the history so i I understand their positioning and then uh, so that's the that's kind of the the interesting like uh i guess uh, opposing viewpoints is nato wise it, it'd be a pretty aggressive stance to admit um finland and sweden into nato um now for finland i i understand the the motivations and why they would want to join nato um the motivations for nato itself um is is kind of a, a dangerous line line to be walking uh in in terms of that so yeah it's it's uh definitely an an interesting uh 
situation with with all that at play. And it looks like NATO's all for them joining except for Turkey. And I I was curious and, and researching like, oh, why why wouldn't Turkey want Finland and Sweden to join um, when all the other NATO countries are, are all for it and all about it. Well, it, it turns out that uh, Erdogan is basically calling Finland and Sweden a terrorist safe haven in terms of Kurdish uh, people uh, living in Finland and Sweden. And basically he wants uh, them to expedite some of their their uh, Kurdish population to Turkey under the guise of them being terrorists. Um, yeah, Erdogan basically is very, um, very uh, against Kurdistan and views the Kurds as a threat to his rule and is willing to basically take any steps that he possibly can to put down um, any Kurdish uprising or, or anything like that. So like even during the, the Syrian war, you know, you had the Kurdish fighters essentially fighting against ISIS and somewhat getting along with with um the syrian forces not really coming into too much direct conflict with with the syrian forces but meanwhile turkey was uh making air raids and and bombing the kurdish pashmurga uh fighters so uh it's i don't know it's uh <laughs> he's a he's a very uh single-minded person when it comes to that so that was that kind of took me to surprise a little bit where it was like, well, how many Kurdish people do they, do they really have in the country? And uh, they have some numbers, but it's, it's nothing really that significant, but that was essentially Erdogan's gripe in terms of not wanting Finland and NATO to join. Well, so, so this has been a, for me, it, it kind of pushed me to, uh, to dig a little deeper on stuff that I was already kind of uh, surface level aware of just from, I'm, I'm kind of a history buff. So this was, that was part of it was really cool. And also just kind of looking at, at the way things are moving and um, to get a piece of this whole Ukraine, NATO, Russia thing on the table for people who probably wouldn't look at this stuff. Otherwise um, like, like Finland, and Sweden putting in to join NATO, for most people, you wouldn't understand why that's problematic. Uh, most people don't even know, you know, like we talked about with the, the geography side of it, most people don't even know where they are on a map, much less why that would be problematic. So, so to kind of give some, some historical context and, and lay out where, where a lot of the uh, continued conflict comes from, because regardless of the fact that it was 80 years ago, there is still some of that uh, lingers throughout a lot of, a lot of Europe, like just because world war two ended so long ago, doesn't mean it necessarily ended for uh, 
the states involved in the whole thing. Like there's still there's still stuff that that crops itself up, especially where uh, where Russia is involved because because the Soviet Union had so much power and influence for such a long period of time, and even to to a, a decent extent. They still do, um, especially with as much control as they hold over the oil supply and and fuel in in that part of the world. Um, isn't Finland one of the countries that was largely reliant on on uh, Russian oil and gas and and got told either you pay with rubles or you get your supply cut off and they got their supply cut off? Essentially, yeah. So. Um, now they're going to be uh, relying on a lot more imports from some other countries. And um, Sweden has some reserves, but not enough to, to really supply the whole region currently. Um, so, yeah, they're going to have to be looking for other sources. I know yeah, we're so wrapping up, but the, the, so yeah, the there's a lot of middle. tensions going on there that have been <laughs> like, it's, it's historical tensions that are still kind of at play even even today. Yeah, the, the last thing I'll, I'll add to, to me to wrap up on is um, from Putin's perspective, too, um, you know, they've they've gotten along pretty well. But I could also see where um, there hasn't been sentiment in Finland to, to take back the Karelian Isthmus and the land lost in the Winter War and the Continuation War. But from Putin's perspective, I could see where that would maybe be a concern. Um, also, with Ukraine and Finland. Um, it's, it's been very different, um, where Finland's had pretty good relation relationship with Russia, um, recently, well, not real recently, but before that, um, and there hasn't been the other provoking factors like you saw with Crimea and the Donbass region and, uh, the color revolutions and that whole aspect and the Russian speakers inside of Ukraine that have have been kind of oppressed by the, the Ukrainian government. There's not that those factors coming into play when it comes to uh, Russia being provoked into invading Finland. So it, yeah. it basically comes down to just the NATO thing versus all those other factors that played into the Ukrainian invasion. So then it gets to be a decision on the NATO part. Do we want to continue to expand membership and, uh, piss off Russia or kind of let things stand pat and not, not continue to impose borders because that, I mean, that's, that's really kind of where it, where had it had fallen for a very long time was NATO wasn't going to push up on Russian border because Russia didn't want that and doing so would incite what we're seeing now. Um, no. So it, it's, it's, that's, an, that's it's an interesting partially... game of chess that's being played over there. Yeah. <laughs> And that's partially too why why Finland wanted to remain neutral through this whole thing. And I realize too that I, I apologize if I have not came off as an unbiased source uh, <laughs> uh, with uh, Finnish ancestry. I might have been uh, came off as a little pro-Finnish. Uh, so I, I realize that and uh, I apologize if that was the case. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It was a uh, as somebody who has absolutely no uh bias one way or the other just looking at it from a purely historical standpoint like i i thought you covered everything really well you you covered everything in the same way that i would have so i thought it was pretty good yeah i appreciate this steve this was hopefully everybody got something out of this and like now has 
if not a better understanding of what's going on right now, at least you know something about World War II that you might not have known previously. You got anything you want to plug? Nope. Uh, nothing. Uh, fact check this podcast. <laughs> I appreciate it. Like and subscribe. <laughs> I appreciate it. And speaking of, I will be back on Monday with a brand new episode talking about, I'm not exactly sure yet, but I'll figure it out between now and then. Hope everybody enjoyed this one. Have a good rest of your day, a good rest of your week, and I will catch you Monday. Yeah.